Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. The COVID-19 pandemic has impacted ICUs all over the world in unprecedented ways. The last two years have been extremely difficult and challenging for critical care clinicians, ICU teams, and most notable for ICU patients and their families. As we start a new year, we look forward with hope to grow and improve critical care medicine. In today's episode of the podcast, we will discuss a path forward focused on healing, recovery, and transformation. Our guest is Dr. Wesley Illy. Dr. Illy is a professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine with subspecialty training in pulmonary and critical care medicine. Dr. Illy's research has focused on improving the care and outcomes of critically ill patients with ICU-acquired brain disease, manifestly acutely as delirium and chronically as acquired dementia. He is the co-director and the founder of the Center for Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship, the SIB Center, which has enrolled thousands of patients into clinical trials, answering vital questions about ICU-acquired brain disease and other components of ICU survivorship. His team developed the CAM-ICU, the primary tool used to measure delirium in ICU-based trials and clinically at the bedside. Dr. Ely is also the author of Every Deep Drawn Breath, a wonderful book that we will discuss today, and more importantly, a book that every listener of this podcast must read. It's a real honor to welcome him back to the podcast. Wes, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much, Sergio. It's really nice to be able to spend time with you today and hopefully talk about things that matter to your listeners. Absolutely. And like I mentioned in the intro, it's been a tough two years. We're starting a new year. Every new year, we have new resolutions and new hope. But I think there's a lot to talk about in terms of healing and recovering our ICU teams. And I would like to start with the book, Every Deep Drawn Breath. It's a phenomenal read. I, I really enjoyed it. And we were talking before we we started recording just uh, how vulnerable uh, one can become when you write a, an account like this and how I feel that I know so much about your life right now and so much to share. But the idea really is to use your arc as a clinical investigator and finding your purpose and wonder in terms of applying those lessons to every critical care clinician and every ICU team and caring for our patients. So tell me a little bit about the genesis of the book. Thanks, Sergio. I appreciate that question. You know, I have been practicing medicine for over 30 years, and I've gotten a lot of gray hair during that time. And it's really been my goal the whole time, like it is yours and your listeners, to serve others and just to do the best job I can at being a physician who sees the entire person And I realized along the way that I was just carrying a lot of shame and guilt around because I didn't think I was doing that well enough. And I was doing it in ways that ended up hurting them. So after designing, you know, numerous cohort studies and randomized controlled trials and publishing, you know, all these hundreds of papers and such, I realized that we were only getting the message of how to do a better job and be more humane at the bedside to those who are reading the scientific papers. And I thought, you know, there's a whole world of the patients and families out there who need to get autonomy and need to be empowered to advocate for themselves. And so I thought maybe a book would do it. And the book is not a memoir. It's a, it's a 
it's a book of narrative nonfiction. Every patient in the book, every name is true. There's no made up stories. This is, and I didn't even hide any patients' names. It's, you know, you can look these people up on the internet. In fact, we have a photo gallery where you can see all their pictures. And so it's a devotion to them. It's a mission to raise money for them. Actually, every penny from the book, including my entire author advance, et cetera, is being donated into a fund for patients and families of COVID and, and other ICU illnesses. And I hope that people find their hearts there, Sergio, and that they find that it helps them process their vocation and makes them better at what they do. And for the patients and families who read it, the non-medical people, I hope it helps them realize that they have a way forward after critical illness to a really full life. Absolutely. And I think that uh, the arc that you describe over those 30 years has a lot of elements that are obviously universal that not only apply to clinicians and critical care all over the world, but like you said, apply to human beings who have to deal with, with critical illness. And I definitely want to tap into some of those. I also want to reemphasize something that you mentioned, which is the proceeds of the sales of this book. I believe that you should always buy a book to read it. But in this case, you're going to have a double double whammy in terms of benefit because you will read a great book, but you'll also be helping advance survivorship in the ICU, an area that, as we'll discuss post-COVID, is going to be even more important than it was before. It's really true. And let me just chime in on that. You know, what if ICU survivors had a way, a group of people who could help them figure out how do I apply for disability? How do I navigate the social structures of my re-entry into the world? And how do I even deal with insurance claims, for example, et cetera? So the, I call every deep drawn breath, abbreviated EDDB, every deep drawn breath. So we're setting up an EDDB foundation for survivors. And what we're doing is we're going to hire insurance specialists, disability specialists, and social workers and make them available to critical care survivors from anywhere, all over the United States, Canada, Latin America, Europe. And they can come to our SIB center. That's our research center here at Vanderbilt. And the SIBS is C-I-B-S. It stands for Critical Illness, Brain Dysfunction, and Survivorship. And so the idea was, let's write a book that is not even really a medical book. I don't even think EDDB is a medical book. I think it's a book about people in life and with these the bravery of these people's stories. And there's a ton of social justice in there too because medicine, within medicine, the goodness of medicine, we have a lot of elements of, of injustice too and we have to fix those things. So yes, the reader will know that they are part of this mission. And to that end, you know, once you read it, leave a review on Amazon, leave a review on Goodreads, because when you do that, it draws more people in and then we make more money for the foundation. And we're going to we're going to have this set up for, you know, for, for in perpetuity going forward to help these people rebuild their lives. Yeah. And I'll push back a little bit there, Wes, on your comment that it's not a medical book. I would say it also is a wonderful medical book because I can guarantee that any clinician who reads this book and looks at the resources you put there will be a better physician. Period. I hope so. so. I hope so. I believe it's a medical book as well. <laughs> I did get nerdy with it. I mean, the, anybody who reads this book will find the complete references for any of the science that I put in this book. And there's an immense amount of science in there. I just wrote it in a way that non-medical people would hopefully find it easily easy to follow. And uh, you know, I, my 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 cousin is a is a road scholar, so he's actually a very smart guy. But he's um, he called me yesterday. He's seventy in his mid seventies. And he said, Wes, I would never read a book like this, but I just found it so captivating and I couldn't stop. 
And uh, you know, he'll never look at those those chapter notes with the references. But for the scientists listening, all the references are there, and you can find uh, the papers. Absolutely. And if you if you're a, a graduating fellow and you don't know where to start, pull those references, and you'll be an expert. <laughs> there it is. Excellent. Excellent. So they say that 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 everybody has a book in themselves, but unfortunately, very few people share share that book with 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 the world. But uh, Tell me about what has been the most rewarding of this whole process, because I'm sure it's been a journey. I think that being able to pay tribute to these brave patients and 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 hearing their story, I, I really kind of consider myself a pencil. I, I listen to people's stories and I write them down. And I've been doing that ever since I was a medical student. And I have I had had these stories just piling up in my life. And you know what what's really funny is that I was cogitating about when to if I should ever write a book and and uh, Rena Oddish you know who wrote In Shock which is a legendary book in critical care was in my office one day and she said you should write a book and so I I just listened to her and I did and she was the one who sparked me to do it I have drawers full of their stories I have transcriptions of of, of the actual words these people said and so the quotes in the book I really took an investigative journalism approach and they're all verbatim quotes I mean I didn't make any of these quotes up they're verbatim, and that's what made it so much fun is that I knew I was being truthful to their story in honoring them, and that's that's really been fun. And to be to be able to put together a photo gallery with all their pictures and have people be able to go and find oh there's uh, there's Marcus Cobb, there's you know uh, Clementine Hunter, there's uh, Maya Angelou, there's John Prine. I mean they're in the book too, so that's been a real honor to to show these people for who they actually are. And I think it, it points to maybe. One of the first big lessons, right, which has to do with humanizing the people we treat and really understanding uh, the, 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 the humanity in those patients that, that lie in our ICUs, which I think is often something that we lose. I, I only practice critical care. One of the things that I have learned through your work, Wes, and, and your team is that there's a lot that happens after I have high-fived my team when somebody left the ICU and, and proclaiming victory. That is not so 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 bright and sweet, right? It's 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 uh, it's so difficult, and you know, there's a, at the beginning of the book, I talk about the first patient I ever had. Her name was Sarah Bollock, and she was a young woman who had had a baby. And just in terms of humanizing her, you know, l listen to this just paragraph. She has this peripartum cardiomyopathy, and she's basically in shock in the ICU. And I'm a student, and she says, "What's happening to me, Doctor West?" She asked again and again, or why can't I be home with my baby? Unsure of myself and my nascent knowledge, I fumbled through some facts. Her blood pressure was too low. Her heart was failing. We hoped it would improve. We both knew she was likely to die. I could see it in her eyes, and I'm sure she could see it in mine. But she continued to trust me and my medicine. And, you know, I'll never, ever forget her and her eyes, the way she looked at me. Uh, I feel right now I can feel her skin, me touching her hands, holding her hands. And I won't tell the reader what happens next in her life, but but I, I'll never forget any of those details because she was an entire person to me, just like your patients are entire people to you. And that's why medicine is more, our goal has to be more than benevolence. Benevolence just means doing good. I mean, I mean, uh, wishing good, hoping for good, but beneficence is actually doing good. And all of us know along the way that despite our desire to do to do good, sometimes we don't. And so critical care in the 90s and the early 2000s was causing an immense amount of harm. 
and we worked for 15, 20 years, enrolled tens of thousands of patients in trials to get it better. And by 2018, 2019, we had made a ton of progress and then COVID hit and we have had a major backpedal in the degree of goodness because now we're doing things to people that we've already proven hurt them and cause long-term cognitive dysfunction and physical disabilities. And we're gonna have to find our way back, Sergio. Absolutely, and, and, and I wanna to touch on uh, two points um, a little bit deeper on that. One is that what you described, uh, that first patient in, in charity when you were a medical student, um, it's important for all our listeners to remember that we all had that at one point, that connection and that sense of wonder. And when we lose that, it's important for us to dig deep and try to find it again, right? That's what took us to medicine in the first place. And I think that sometimes I see colleagues forget that or, or lose track of that. And, it, and I think it, it causes a lot of, 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 of harm, not only to our patients, but to, to our colleagues as well. And, and the second thing that, that I think is, is, uh, is also important there in terms of COVID, what we'll touch about is how things, how COVID impacted our progress. But before we go to that, one last question regarding the, 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 the book itself is, what has been the biggest surprise, Wes, with publishing EDDB? Well, I think the biggest surprise is that people who, like us, who do medicine and think that we need to get our directions from the published peer-reviewed literature have come out of the woodwork to me and say, whoa, you ch this book, EDDB, changed the way that I think, and I don't want to live the way I used to as a doctor or a nurse or a respiratory therapist anymore. I wanted I want to be a different sort of healthcare professional, and what a what a privilege to be part of their journey now. But but also how amazing that they that I could bring to life these patients on the pages of EDDB, and these people could find their heart and say, Oh my gosh, with all my science, I'm now going to become a new kind of healthcare professional, a new kind of nurse, uh, pharmacist, um, OTPT. And that's just a real gift to me to be a part, a widget in their in their journey. Yeah, and I think it speaks to to the power of story, right? We we've known this, I mean, for for centuries that the only thing that really moves us is stories, and uh, data might be interesting, but it's stories that move people to action, and maybe that's a little bit lacking in the in the scientific literature. Obviously, we need the data, but I think when you can connect data that's been scientifically uh, rigorously obtained with great stories, you have a winning combination. I hope so. So let's talk about COVID. You did mention it, and uh, we've talked about this in previous episodes of the podcast, but clearly you have been pushing forward and moving uh, our, uh, our assumptions uh, uh, of what we were doing in critical care as being positive to recognizing that it can be harmful and recognizing that there's a, but a better way forward. And we were definitely, I think, making progress in many places. And then COVID-19 came and it's, it feels like it's back to 1990s. So what happened, Wes? Yeah, I, I, let, and, let, and let, me DV, let me just read a little bit from EDDB. This is in the epilogue where I come back to COVID. COVID's th strewn throughout the book. Um, listen here. If mad scientists had schemed to create the greatest number of people with delirium and PICS, post-intensive care syndrome, COVID-19 and our early response to the pandemic would have been their devious ploy. 
In the initial panic, we focused on getting our patients on ventilators, sedating them heavily, and didn't pause to think about the downstream effects. We isolated our patients and to save our supplies of PPE, stopping early mobility and physical therapy sessions, and we prevented friends and families from visiting. Dr. Robert Heise, ICU director at University of Michigan, told me, doctors had a fear of exposing nurses and ourselves to the virus. This drove our willingness to deviate from established practices. Keeping sedation going should immediately trigger fear, but it didn't. That worry was drowned out in our minds by earned fatigue, sore noses from N95s, hunger, and the need to go to the bathroom on a long shift wearing PPE. And the patients don't know about PICs yet. And then one more paragraph here. When I spoke with Elizabeth Riviello, an ICU doctor at Beth Israel Harvard in Boston, her words were similar. The risks of PICs in patients who we sedate too heavily and too long is less dramatic and further away from our thoughts than the need to save their lives immediately. We give in to more immediate fears and we keep people sedated. And that's really what happened, Sergio, is that we, we gave in to the old way of doing things, even though we know through absolutely hardcore science, Lancet, New England Journal, JAMA papers, that it hurts people, we gave in. And right now, as we speak, thousands of people are getting a 1990s form of critical care that we had we had to unlearn uh, between 20, 2005 and 2019, and now we're going to have to unlearn it again because because new trainees they think this is how you practice critical care now. Absolutely, and and, and it's also interesting, Wes, that you you mentioned this, and I think there's a quote in the book uh, that Mandela made regarding his hope for actions to be based on on mm-hmm. uh, on hopes versus fears, right? Yes. And we definitely acted out of fear. And what I find remarkable is that every wave pushed us back again. We thought yeah. we had learned, but then you realize you're in the midst of another, like like the last Delta wave here in the South in Texas. You're back where you were before. And I think that it's been very difficult and we definitely have to find a, a path forward. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But what I would like to, to ask you, Wes, is to, to just to hear some of your comments in terms of, obviously, you've been a big uh, um, reason why a lot of people talk about the A to F bundles uh, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the original ABC trial, but also as these continue to grow, your focus on delirium. But it seems that, like you said in your, in your eloquent paragraph, that we couldn't have planned a better ploy to destroy the A to F bundles than COVID-19. And if you can maybe comment on, I'll give you a couple of the elements and you can just comment on what happened and what we have learned. So maybe we can start with the ABCs. Sure, absolutely. And just for the listener, you know, so A, it's funny, back in 2005 when we designed our first ABC study, which was published in Lancet. And that study, by the way, for the listeners is the first study to ever show an overt survival advantage, reduction in mortality, just by reducing sedation. And we did it, it was clear cut. And we had a 15% absolute risk reduction in death just by cutting propofol, uh, fentanyl, and, uh, and benzos in half. And that's why it was published in Lancet. And, and the, it was, then it was called the Awakening Breathing Coordination. But then we added delirium as a D, and then E is early mobility, and F is family. And what happened was the, the pain gurus were mad that pain wasn't explicitly listed. We always covered pain first, but we eventually made the A into analgesia. So now A is make sure we cover pain, analgesia. And then B is both SATs and SBTs, which is 
turning off drugs and turning off the ventilator every day. That's two, two New England Journal papers, uh, one of which was my SBT paper in the New England in 1996. That was my chief resident research project, actually, um, which was kind of a great way to start in academics in the New England Journal. Uh, I got lucky with that one. But, um, but we, we know that this ABCDEF bundle works, and the ABCs is really just waking, making sure their pain's controlled, waking them up every day, and turning off sedation just to see how things go. And one of my fellows, Bud Hollis, Bud, Bud, Hollis Bud O'Neill, he's, he's from Vanderbilt, but now he's back in Louisiana. He was telling me, and this is in EDDB, that during the New Orleans surge, I, I know if you remember, it was New York, Michigan, and New Orleans, which were really surging hugely at the beginning. And he said that, uh, he, there's a quote, we hear some physicians recommend radically new approaches to COVID-19. All I know is that deviating from life-saving methods proven over 20 years will do more harm than good. For my patients, I'm sticking to, to the A2F bundle. We know it works. And just what a what a beautiful pith, you know, succinct way of saying, hey, we why would we why would we not do what we know works? And um, and we have to realize that humans deviate all the time from things we know best to do because human factors enter in like I'm tired. My beeper went off. Um, I need to go eat. And so then you don't mobilize your patient. You don't give them the rehab they need or you don't connect them with their loved ones. And then they suffer. Yeah, absolutely. What about delirium, the D? Um, you know, I was. We were talking before we got on about the the, the nurse, the the now she's a DNP, doctor of nursing practice, Brenda Pun, who, who's been with me since the very beginning. She knocked on my door in 1998, and that knock, I opened the door, and she, I was actually the director of lung transplant at Vanderbilt at the time, and. Uh, she said, hi, I'm a nursing student at Vanderbilt, and I heard you're doing, maybe thinking of doing some work in delirium. Do you have a nurse yet? And, you know, we've been working together for 25 years. She helped me develop the CAM-ICU. We went on to prove that delirium is a one of the most robust predictors of death in the ICU. It's also a predictor of three other important things, increased cost of care, increased length of stay, and increased dementia. So the D of the bundle just says to us, Sergio, every patient every day should be evaluated for are they delirious or not? And if they are, then we should hit them with, a, with an approach to reduce that delirium duration. And what we use is called the Dr. Dre. It's just D-D-R-E, which stands for diseases like sepsis or COVID or COPD or you know, whatever could be creating the delirium. Diseases, drug removal, and that's not adding drugs, but getting rid of things that are psychoactive, benzos, for example, or propofol, and then environment. So DDRE, diseases, drug removal, and environment. At the environment, you just think to yourself, how can I restructure this patient's diurnal cycle, make sure that day is day, night is night, and then also put their eyeglasses on, put their hearing aids on, talk to that person, and most importantly of all, get them out of bed and in touch with their loved ones. Because mobilization and family, which is the E and the F, that cuts delirium in half. Both of those cut delirium in half. And if we cut delirium in half, we're gonna see people surviving more often, we're gonna see them having less dementia and getting out of the hospital and back to their, their life, at, you know, back to where they were before. 
Absolutely. And I think that if you look at the, the Dr. Dre mnemonic and you apply that to COVID, you got a disease that is novel and involves the whole body. Like I think you mentioned in, in the book, the lung bone is definitely connected to the brain bone, right? I mean, so right. clearly it, it impacts. You got a boatload of drugs that are now on top of that, that we weren't using as much. So there's plenty of opportunity for removal and you've totally destroyed the environment. You have now the worst environment that I have seen in my in my career in an ICU uh, with PPE, isolation, and negative pressure, make makeshift fans that make constant noise and no families. So clearly, I mean, like you said, it's like the, the perfect storm. I remember when we were in the no isolation period and right now in 2021, we have open visitation in our ICU. So if you if you don't have COVID, the doors are wide open and people just come and go. It's the, it's the old way, which is wonderful. And I know there are people listening who don't have that yet. And I'm saying it on purpose so that you can advocate for this humanism because people die of loneliness. People die of not having the people they love around them because they forget their purpose and their why. You know, um, Viktor Frankl said in Man's Search for Meaning four times, <clears throat> he quotes, um, uh, Nietzsche, when he says, if a man has a why to live, he can get by with almost any how. And that beautiful quote that Frankel, you know, said four times in his book after he got out of Auschwitz really helps me every day to remember, I need to help my patients find their why to live. And what is a better why than your wife or your husband or your son or your uncle or your best friend? So we've got to get them back in there. So Vanderbilt's reopened visitation. For COVID units, we the patients go, the families go in with PPE into the COVID room, even when they're on the ventilator and everything. So we've we've got that improved dramatically. But what I was going to tell you was this story was that at the very beginning when we had none of that and we, we were we were practicing what I call anti-medicine. I said to the I had this young woman, she had lupus and she was dying of lupus cerebritis, and her family has allowed me to use her story, but I won't mention her name or anything. But I said to the administration, I'm bringing her family in. And they were like, no, you can't. I was like, well, no, they're coming in. And 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 I just said, no, they're coming in. So the the mother and the husband, the mother and the father came into the room of this young 20, upper 20s year old woman. And when she took her mask off to be with her daughter, I knew her. They, these people did not have COVID. This was a non-COVID room. So she was able to take her mask off and, and talk to her daughter. And um and I, I, she was a checkout person at my local grocery store and I, we knew one another. And I thought, wow, this is what humanity is all about, is if I had not allowed her in here, I wouldn't have even known that my patient was this woman's daughter or ever made that connection. And that's no way to be a physician. Right. That makes no sense. So we have to make sure that we uphold the values and the principles of our profession. Yeah, and I think you 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 speak a, a, about that a lot in the in your journey in the book. Is uh, so many of us, uh, when if we were asked what's most important, especially at the beginning of COVID, would say peep, proning, this that, and it's not right. I mean, clearly, it's about understanding the person who who lies in that in that in that bed and everything that surrounds them. And I think that's something that we definitely have lost during COVID in many places. Oh, completely. Abs absolutely, we've lost that. And we can't afford to lose that because if we do, we disconnect ourselves as people from these human beings that we're there to serve. 
you know, when, when Osler talks about equanimitas and his famous speech that was 100 years to the date that I graduated from medical school, um, I, my mother gave me that book, you know, when I was graduate, when I was a medical student. And, and I took that, I, I really, it became an overused asset for me because I thought that equanimity, that even keeledness is the way I've got to practice. And I, I think I, I allowed myself to remove the interpersonal connection, the deep interpersonal connection for my patients. And I don't really want to live like that as a physician anymore. Equanimity is a good thing, no question, but it can be overused. And in COVID, it's really easy to overuse that because there's already so many forces pushing us to distance ourselves with masking and everything. So we have to, I have to actually fight a, a, against that now to get back kneeling, holding their hands, looking in their eyes, and to, to establish that really intense personal connection that I know they deserve from me as their doctor. Yeah. And, and I think another way of looking at equanimity is also a very um, highly discussed and valued virtue in the Stoic philosophy. And what Marcos Aurelius, and I've mentioned him in previous podcasts about with Delirium with you, would probably argue is that what it really means about is focusing on the things we do control, right? And having that even keel on what we control. And we absolutely control how we treat other human beings. And I think that's, there's a difference of being, uh, being even keeled and not necessarily uh, being detached, right? So the idea is you have to lean in more to our, to our, to our patients' lives. And I think that's where we've been wrong many times and with COVID even worse. Oh, I, lo I love that you brought up Marcus Aurelius and, and Stoicism. And I think about what you said about what we, what we can control. And I think as a doctor, no, just forget that, as a human being, as a person, it, it, it takes courage to change the things that we can change. And, but we, we have to seek out and, and try and cultivate courage to change the things we can. And, and, and those, those aspects that we can't change, of course, you know, that's out of our control. But there are so many ways right now in medicine that we can modify care for patients to improve the ability of the A2F bundle to be enacted. And, and by the way, the A2F bundle has got 35 to 40 New England Journal, Lancet, and JAMA papers behind it, and over 400 peer-reviewed papers generally. So for anybody who thinks this is warm and fuzzy, think again. This is hard science that we're talking about applying, but the beauty is that that it brings a human touch into the arena of technology that we live in. And so it, it's allowed me, Sergio, to, to push touch in front of technology. The ADF bundle allows me to put touch first and technology second, whereas for 20 years, I was kind of living with that in reverse, which I no longer think is the best way to practice medicine for me. Absolutely. And, and I, I want to wrap up the, the A to F bundle discussion with the last two elements, which are E and F, which are, I think, well, I don't know, maybe that's, but, but probably of all the elements, the ones that were uh, assaulted by COVID the most, and yet these are not, oh, it's great to do if we can, optional, because as you said, and you can talk about this, uh, both early mobility and family presence have a real therapeutic benefit on outcomes. And if you could comment on what has happened and why it's so important for our clinicians to go and tell their administrators, I'm bringing in the family of this dying patient. What you're telling me makes no sense. We got to get up and walk these patients. We do. And, we, and, and you know, there's a great story of, of Polly Bailey 
going to Johns Hopkins. Polly is in the book uh, a lot, and she was one of the first people in Utah that helped to start the mobilization movement, along with Chris Permy, who's a physical therapist in Houston. And her story's amazing <laughs> for the reader. She comes from Latin America, gets lost on a ship at sea, just with a desire to be a physical therapist in the United States. And she has to climb down a rope to get into a dinghy in the New Orleans Harbor, a couple of miles away from where I was actually a medical student at the time. She walks the first people on the ventilator in the United States. And then years later, Polly Bailey does the same thing with Joy Sunloff. All that is told in the book. And when Polly was asked by Roy Brower, the famous six versus 12, you know, intensivist at Johns Hopkins of Ardsnet fame, to come to Hopkins, every bed that they went to, Roy said, well, Polly, what would you do now? And she tells the story that, well, and he tells the story too, I would stop sedation. And they get to the next bed, what would you do? It's like a broken record, I would stop sedation. And it brings me to, to something I wanna share with the reader from chapter nine, which was the chapter on awakening change. Can I read just a couple of things from that? Go ahead. Okay. In March 2012, I stood outside a daffodil yellow cottage with a red tiled roof on a cobblestone street in Odense, Denmark, 100 miles west of Copenhagen. Two centuries earlier, this quaint building had been the childhood home of writer Hans Christian Andersen. And as I peered through the windows, I wondered if I might be about to encounter my own modern day fairy tale. And the reason I, I begin with that is that a few months before I was there in 2012, Thomas Strom had published this paper in Lancet of no sedation. And see, no sedation allows you to wake people up and then allows you to do what you just asked to, to talk about, ENF, which is early mobility in family. Because if they're sedated, you can't mobilize them and you, they can't interact with their family. So the E to F hinges on this thing that Thomas Strom brought in. And at the end of the chapter, um, I talk about when I came home from that, and this is the title track of the book. So I want to read you these two paragraphs because I got home from there. and I thought, you know what? This isn't a fairy tale. And last week, Sergio, I had a woman in the ICU uh, who was a new mother, had just delivered a baby. And she was on 40 of propofol, 300 of fentanyl, deeply sedated when I came on service. And I thought, no, we can't do this to her. If we do this to her, she won't be able to take care of her four children. And so we dramatically restructured her sedation approach that day, by the end of the day, she was on 70% instead of 100% FiO2 on pressure control. And we were inching way stronger towards the issue of no, pro she was on no propofol, no benzos, and it was a much better thing. But when I got home from, from Copenhagen, I, I wrote this uh, in the book. Since my mother's summer book club, I'd loved reading Steinbeck, inspired by his empathy towards the underdog. In his magnum opus, East of Eden, there's a passage that describes the exhilaration of being alive and how the joy colors the world with promise. Quote, sometimes a kind of glory lights up the mind of a man. It happens to nearly everyone. You can feel it growing or preparing like a fuse burning towards dynamite. It's a feeling in the stomach, a delight of the nerves, of the forearms. The skin tastes the air and every deep drawn breath is sweet. That was how I felt after Adenza. I returned home to Nashville with a sense of excitement and urgency and a freedom I had not felt before. I didn't have to practice medicine in the same old way. As our girls finished up their homework, I talked with Kim, my wife, walking with her through the soft dark of our neighborhood. I heard the enthusiasm in my voice. I could hardly wait to get back to the hospital. In my mind, I was already seeing my patients out of their beds and walking the wards just days after being admitted to the ICU. 
How will you do it? She asked. And that's, Sergio, where we have to start with the question, how will we do it, right? And why don't you think out loud with me a little bit, Sergio, about you are director of all these ICUs. How do you see us doing it? And, and what's the way forward? I'd, I'd love to learn from you. Well, and I think that uh, you mentioned also this in, in one of the, uh, when you started teaching uh, before COVID, the ADF bundles, is what can you do next Tuesday? So maybe you can say, what can I do the next time I'm rounding in the ICU, right? And there is opportunity with every patient to start moving the needle. And what we'll talk a little bit later is as we try to find the path forward, I do believe that we should just take a beginner's mind like we've never heard of A to F and start from zero and applying that to our patients step by step at every ICU. I also want to, want to mention, Wes, that I think that the Odenza experience it is also very important in terms that no matter how good you are with this, I mean, you've been studying this your whole life, yet you go to a place that's teaching you a new trick and you're in wonder, right? So no matter how good an ICU thinks they're doing the A to F, there's plenty of room for improvement. So I don't want to hear that, oh, we do it already. No, no. What can you do tomorrow to move the needle? And one patient at a time, I think you start moving in the right direction. And then you obviously want to be able to, to capture what you're doing to measure it so that we really can manage it move 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 forward. But I think that's really the the, the way forward, just the baby steps. Like you, you saw this patient who's heavily sedated and just working on that individual patient starts moving the needle. Exactly. That, that's a beautiful way of putting it. And I want to give people a, barometer, a, a way of measuring in their own mind how they think they're doing with that. You know, I talk in, in the book about the, my own personal kaleidoscope and the way that I like to look at the unit as a kaleidoscope with everybody's bright colors that they bring in. And um, I've been me mesmerized by kaleidoscopes all my life. I wrote a piece in the Annals of Internal Medicine entitled Kaleidoscopes. So if somebody wants to read that original piece, it's, it's in the section called On Being a Doctor in the Annals of Internal Medicine. Um, but, but the reason that the kaleidoscope works for me in my life as a doctor is that when you look through a kaleidoscope, you see reds and greens and blues and oranges and all the colors. And that's what people are to me. People are all of those fascinating things that that make them up. You know, their, their love of pizza or Chinese food or whatever it may be. And then their love of art and music and all these things. So is it OK to run them through what I'll call a depersonalization chamber where instead of seeing them in color, we see every ICU patient now in gray tones. So everybody runs through the depersonalization chamber, and now all we see is lumps on a bed, where Thomas Petty said, it looks like to me that they're dead except for the monitors that tell me otherwise. You know, and Thomas Petty makes an appearance in the book. He's, he's there, you know, it's, a, it's amazing that he is, uh, that he, he and I got to interact and I got to meet him and learn from him. We can't fully take care of a human being in gray tones. It, it doesn't work because real people don't, they aren't in black and white. They're actually in color. And when we practice critical care, like they're in black and white, it depersonalizes them. It takes away their dignity. It, well, it doesn't take away their dignity, but it, it, it hides their dignity because dignity is innate. It's, 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 it's innate in every person, but it hides it and it doesn't let it shine like it needs to. And I hope that people will think about that and, and ask themselves this question, am I practicing in gray tones or do I see this person in vivid color like as if it's a kaleidoscope? I think that's a beautiful analogy and I would definitely reference in the show notes a lot of the 
the books and the articles that were that were that were mentioning. Uh, I would like to touch a little bit on surviving COVID-19 in the ICU. A lot of what we hear about is the people who have died from COVID, which obviously is a, a, a really a almost incredible number of patients. But I think that the next couple of years, uh, there's going to be a lot more suffering from those who survived as well. And I would like to, to hear your thoughts on long COVID, long COVID versus PICS. What, what should we be focusing on as we move forward? Sure. Yes. Uh, you know, for the listeners, so long COVID, it looks like right now that at least a third of people after COVID experienced long COVID. And the sickest of all COVID patients who went through the hospitalizations have, in addition to that, PICS, post-intensive care syndrome, which is PICS is an, the acquisition, the rapid acquisition in a matter of days uh, of, of, of neck up problems of dementia, PTSD and depression and the neck down problems of muscle and nerve disease that physically and cognitively disables people. But then about 100 days after the ICU or after the hospitalization is when long COVID kicks in. And, and I used to think of them as the same thing, but now I realize that there really is a distinction because people who were never hospitalized at all can 100 days out get this long COVID problem, which is a, it's a dysautonomia and it's a problem of, of you know, like POTS, for example, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, GI problems, and a bunch of brain fog, the brain that just takes a dive and can't process, and, uh, you know, from executive function to memory. And I wrote a piece actually on this combined problem of PICS and long COVID for Stat News. So if somebody wants to read on this, they can just Google Stat News Wes Ely, and you'll find this piece that I wrote just about a month ago or so. And I featured three patients, and one of the people was Pam, and she was never hospitalized, and she got she was a scientist. She had this amazing life, and she never, uh, you know, had any of the problems of PICS. But she, 100 days out, she's now retired. She had to, to resign as a scientist, as a career scientist, because the long COVID's been so bad. And then Carolyn was in the ICU and developed PICS and had 100 days later this drop off of a cliff with long COVID. And then the last person in the in the piece is Ray. And he went through the ICU, got tremendous picks, but never got any of the long COVID stuff in addition. So these can happen differently for different people. But you are absolutely right that we have a driving unmet need as a society to recognize this public health disaster, which is going to be the long term consequences of this of this viral sepsis that people get this this uh, this pandemic. And we are just barely scratching the surface on the magnitude of this problem from a societal perspective. But for example, I don't have an administrative assistant right now because I can't find anybody to fill the position because there's so many disabled people out there that we really have a workforce problem in the United States and around the world. And that's just one aspect of the financial piece. But the heartache is, 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 the, is the way that the people are suffering cognitively and physically. And they're doing it oftentimes in silence or feeling silenced, which is a form of testimonial injustice. And that's just not right. Yeah. And you did mention about the, the perils of loneliness. And I think that for ICU survivors, but also for clinicians, one of the biggest dangers that I have always uh, seen is the, the, the illusion that what you're suffering is unique to yourself and you're the only one. I think there is so much to be shared, right? And all these things that you've described in PICS, 
the individual patient might think there's something just wrong with them and that they're the only one going through it and nobody understands it, but there's actually thousands of people with similar problems. And I think the same analogy could be made to, to the suffering of some clinicians. I mean, especially during COVID in terms of moral distress and burnout, just recognizing that a lot of the feelings that we have uh, are not unique and sometimes recognizing and talking with others about them is the, the first step forward. I completely agree with that. Just everything you just said just completely resonates with me. And uh, I, I'm so impressed with your, you know, you're you're running all these units and you're such a, you got such an administrative load, but you, you have got such a tight connection with what matters to people. And I, I love that thing about switching the preposition from what's the matter with someone or with an institution to what matters to someone and to us at, in our in our practice of medicine. And and one of the concepts there is that I want to live by putting principles above personalities. So these principles of the humanness and humanism that we have to put first, that principle needs to override my own personal uh, desires or my personal needs that day. And I think in our units, in our practice of critical care, if we can put the principle of humanism first, then we will find a way to implement the A2F bundle. Absolutely. And and I'm a big believer in first order principles, which are usually the, the answer to any gray zone. And unfortunately, in medicine, uh, patient-centered care is lip service. Uh, but really, that should be elevating the human, the human part of each patient should be the first order principle. And uh, when we really work around solving for that, I think we, we, we all win. I think this is a great place, uh, uh, Wes, to move forward. And uh, talk about lessons learned and the path forward. As I mentioned at the introduction, we're looking forward with hope with the new year. And we have a lot to do in terms of rebuilding our teams and healing ourselves and our patients. And I would like to, to explore this uh, through three different areas. Number one is, and most important, the human being in that ICU bit, our patients. Number two is the individual clinician, which is our listeners. And number three is the ICU team, which is what the listeners on the podcast can do to help those around them. So I would like to start with the human being in the ICU bed or our patients. And there's a quote that you mention often in the book, which I believe was something that a Spanish colleague shared with you, which in Spanish says, cada persona es un mundo. Could you ex ex explore that a little bit more? Yes, cada persona es un mundo means each person is a world. And if you think about the depth of the human condition and who we are, there is just a, a world inside of each individual person and endowed inside of us is such a complex matrix of thoughts and beliefs and hopes and dreams and sadnesses and sorrows. And if we want to fully dive into the idea of healing, and if I want to be a healer for someone, then I've got to be willing to deliver mercy. And how I deliver mercy is to my working definition for that at the bedside. When I think about my life generally, mercy-wise, mercy is the willingness to dive into the chaos of another person's life and provide lifting and healing. And I want to break down the first and the second half of that definition because diving into chaos is what we do all the time in the ICU. But if we don't do the latter part, which is the providing, lifting, and healing, then we're not providing true mercy, we're providing false mercy. And I don't want to be a bearer of false mercy. I want to be a bearer of true mercy. 
that is what I want to bring. So in order to do that for the, each individual human being, Sergio, then I have got to pay attention to their spiritual values as well as their mind and their physical. It, it, the, a person is not just matter, M-A-T-T-E-R. They are matter, M-A-T-T-E-R, but they're also body and, and mind and spirit. And, and so uh, I was going to read to you just a short thing from uh, from the book about spirituality. I have this I had this woman and she was an atheist and she was a biochemist and I had this very intense experience. She um, she came in with an acute abdomen. She went to the OR and they opened her up and she was riddled with cancer and sent her back up to my unit. And I'll read you that story in one of this guy named Mike Melton, who was an ALS patient and designed bikes for Lance Armstrong. Uh, but, but, but listen up. So I witnessed a powerful end of life experience between my patient and me. She was an atheist and did not believe in the afterlife. An esteemed scientist, she asked each of the family members three times, the cadence slightly different each time, do you love me? They affirmed yes, and she gave them a hug and a kiss. Then she asked twice more, followed each time by another hug and a kiss. No small feat of courage because she had intense pain from metastatic cancer and a fresh abdominal surgical incision. The emotion was raw, each family member open and exposed. They seemed to move beyond quick answers to thinking about the depth of their love, what it meant to them, to her. She had asked not to be knocked out with morphine, wanting to be present for her loved ones. In completing her ritual, she turned to her other doctor and me and said, you are part of my inner circle now. They reached out to grant us the same enduring gift. We were stunned by her generosity and felt wholly unworthy. You know, I, I love that story because our involvement in the spirituality of other people crosses all sorts of cultural, religious, and socioeconomic boundaries. It distills us down and breaks us down into to our, our basic parts, which is I'm a person and you're a person. And let's start there. And the second story when I, when I diagnosed Navy veteran Mike Melton with spinocerebellar ataxia, a progressive degenerative disease like ALS, he wanted to figure out a way to marry his girlfriend, Jamie, the love of his life, whom he had met on a cycling trip. Mike built bikes for U.S. cyclists and toured the France winner Greg LeMond and others, which I mentioned earlier, Lance Armstrong, and the U.S. Olympic cycling team, pioneering the use of carbon in the industry. He always sported a red, white, and blue bandana, even with a hospital gown. A few calls, and several hours later, a priest was standing at Mike's bedside in the ICU. Our team had decorated the room with white flowers and ribbons, and soft music played. Jamie, all smiles, in a flowering green dress, stood next, I, I should say flowing, a flowing green dress, stood next to Mike, who removed his bandana, and they received the sacrament of matrimony. Their young son, Zachary, clambered up in the bed and laid his head on his father's chest. Later, Jamie told me, we both had some resentment about not getting married earlier. She took a deep breath, but this ended up being the perfect time. And, you know, that's the sort of thing that I think we need to give ourselves permission to do with and for people as human beings in the ICU. And I hope that that kind of draws us down into what as clinicians and as team members we have to do then to uphold that level of humanity, right? Absolutely. And and I think before we move on to the clinician, what, what comes to mind and something that struck me as I was reading EDDB was that 
I've heard a lot of people complain about the term provider, but they've complained for the wrong reason. I hear people complain because it doesn't necessarily uh, credit the, the, the effort of, of becoming a physician versus that versus this. But ultimately, I think that you nailed it, Wes. Well, the reason why provider is such a perverse uh, name for us is because it doesn't represent what we're supposed to do, which is heal. So we are supposed to be healers, not providers. And that's something that I think really struck me. And you did talk about that a little bit in the book as well. And both of these stories illustrate that. That's wonderful. And if you don't mind, I'm going to use that. I'm on I'm on Twitter, by the way, for anybody at Wes Eliamd, uh, just at W E S E L Y M D. And I'm gonna I'm gonna cite you and quote you quote you on that. Are you on you're on Twitter too, right? Yeah, but I'm not as active, but I definitely will find it. <laughs> I'll I'll quote you on that because that's a beautiful that that term provider. I do talk about an EDDB, and you you eloquently stated just now why that term is perverse. It, it, this is an art, not just science. So we have to realize that we are there to be healers. The the next group of people that I really worry about, obviously, other than our patients, is our colleagues and the individual clinicians. Uh, as we mentioned, Wes, I obviously uh, deal with a lot of um, colleagues, intensivists, uh, advanced practice providers in critical care. And in a long time, I have never seen people so down. So I was I was reading the book, and I mentioned, I mean, this tells your story since 1985 and before that, but I mean, your, your whole arc in, in medicine, but it's also, I think, has elements that can be very useful for anybody who's trying to move forward and kind of rekindle their professional life as a, as a healer. And uh, I mentioned to you that a lot of my friends always make fun of me because I always think in threes, but the three kind of themes that emerge as a path forward for, for me as an individual from reading your story in the book were wonder, purpose, and human connection. And I would like you to, to maybe expand or dive a little bit deeper on each one of those and how you see that. Sure, absolutely. I love those three terms. And, you know, in the in the epigraph from East of Eden, I think that Steinbeck is writing about wonder and purpose. And he's talking about just being amazed by the human body. Am I amazed by the way that it works and the way that it is when it's working well and the way that it is when it's not working well and pathology enters in, such as in COVID? But in either circumstance, we can be we can sit there in wonder at the beauty of the human condition and, 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 and the way that cells work and everything, um, which can then give us a purpose to restore health, to do the best we can to restore health. And sometimes, Sergio, it's not possible to restore to cure someone, but you can always pr provide caring and loving, which can restore healing, even in the absence of that cure. And so I think, for example, the bundle provides humanism at the bedside, not, not, not just in healing, not just in survivorship, but especially at end of life, because we have immense purpose at the end of life for our patients to help them resolve relationships and find meaning in those last hours and days. And the entire 12th chapter of the book is on end of life in the ICU. And there's a beautiful story in there about Colonel Victor Correa. He was a 9-11 hero. He was at the Pentagon when the plane crashed into it. 
and he saved people's lives by carrying them out on his back. And he walked, he had a dislocated hip after that, but walked to his house in Alexandria, Virginia, actually walked to his house on a, on a dislocated hip and, um, and had human flesh on him. It was a brutal story. But later in his life, I was able to become his physician. And in caring for him, I saw the wonder of his amazement of his own life. And, 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 and he gave me purpose as a physician to help him provide a, a beautiful, peaceful end of life process. And you know, when he took his last breath, his wife looked up at the clock and she said, it's 911. It was 911. And she uh, she was just blown away that this 911 hero died at 911 in the morning. And that's the sort of thing that just makes you stop dead in your tracks and say, life is amazing. You know, and for me to be a part of that and to, to get to have the privilege of being with them, whether they survive or die, that to me is that human connection, which is the third thing you asked about. So there's your wonder, your purpose and your human connection. And don't cheat yourself from it, because if you cheat yourself from this sort of human connection, that's how we get burnout, because we're not finding we're not getting the payback for being at the bedside with these people we love. Instead, we're experiencing what we call moral injury. And moral injury is, is something where we, we know we're doing something wrong and we're kind of forced to do it anyway. Well, I don't want to live that way anymore as a doctor or as an ICU team member. So let's, let's establish human connection. And I do it by kneeling down, holding hands, looking in eyes, and, and just finding out what, what matters to that person. Yeah, definitely. I mean, by slowing down, uh, listening and asking questions, right, you can definitely connect with people a lot better. And that's something that we should all be doing a lot more, not only at the bedside, but also elsewhere. And, uh, and, and, I, and, I, and I think that that's a beautiful story that, that illustrates, I mean, like you said, I mean, the wonder, the purpose and that, that human connection, which you also talk about uh, ultimately in our, in our work of life as healers is compassion, right? I mean, how do we really suffer and make things better for other for other people so that that compassion uh, uh, which is hard to find sometimes these days with all the <laughs> that has happened in the last two years and compassion can be taught i cover this in every in eddb there's a you know there's a book called compassionomics by stephen treziak and compassion the main point they make is that the literature the scientific literature actually tells us that compassion can be taught in in 30 seconds you can you can teach people you can teach people how to deliver a compassionate human connection in 30 seconds. Miss Smith, I don't understand what it is you're going through. I don't fully grasp the degree of suffering that you're experiencing, but I want to promise you that I'm going to stay with you and I will not leave you. We will be here at your side to help you walk through this. So please let us know what you need and we will be here for you. That's it. That, that's your compassionate message. That establishes the connection that she needs to hear, and you build on that. Yeah, absolutely. And Steve, obviously, is a dear friend of mine, and he's been on the podcast and talked about compassionomics. But, but again, I think it just illustrates that a lot of the things that are true are things that have been around for a long time, right? And uh, and we just have to kind of rediscover them or remind ourselves that they're important and that they're small interventions that we can do every day, right? Like next Tuesday or next time you're on rounds that can move us in that direction and move the needle for, for somebody else. You know, there's a lot of social justice in the book. There's a lot of things about segregation of blood years ago. There's stuff about how we did a first lung transplant. 
on a, on a prisoner. Um, I, I talk about taking the shackles off of a prisoner and and um, to, to try and create a more just society within within the context of medicine as well. And there's a story right at the end of the book about Clementine Hunter. And I know we're getting a little long on time. And I was wondering, maybe we can move to closing with, with a story of this true human, uh, amazing person that I knew as a boy. And I think the, re the listeners might enjoy it. I think that that would be wonderful, Wes. And why don't we go to, instead of, usually a lot of the listeners know, and you as a previous guest, a repeat guests know that I like to ask some closing questions that are unrelated to the topic. We talk about books. We've been talking about books a lot, but I did want to mention that at the end of, uh, of every deep drawn breath, there is a couple of resources. Not only um, there's a wonderful resources for families and clinicians about the A to F bundle and how we can humanize our ICU, but there's also what I found super interesting is a very long look, a list of books to explore. So I think that I would encourage uh, everybody to pick up the book and then look at that as well. And once you finish with every deep drawn breath, you will find a, I'm sure, a wonderful a variety of books that you can explore that many of which I have read and many of which I have not, that I definitely will. I just wanted to mention that. So why don't we go to, to Clementine's story as a closing uh, part of the podcast? Fabulous. Thank you. And yes, in that resources section, which we worked very hard on, there's also a bunch of stuff for families and patients about to hit, pick up the pieces of their life through picks. And one of the sections was written by a former patient named Alden Huslid, and he really did a, a great job. He was a Wall Street um, guru and got got picks after a critical illness, and he really pours himself out on the pages to help people realize how to get through picks. So I just want people to know that that resource is there to tell your patients and families about. So Clementine was a beautiful person that I knew. She's a very famous folk artist. And I'll read to you from the epilogue this, uh, this, uh, this story. I remember well the first day I met Clementine Hunter. I was nine years old and my uncle Warren and I had started early that morning rumbling down the road in his Datsun pickup in Louisiana. A new mattress wrapped in my grandma's homemade quilts bounced around in the back. Uncle Warren collected art encountering little-known artists by word of mouth or by seeing their works propped up outside their homes. Clementine was the first artist he had brought me to visit, and we were taking supplies to her. By the way, the reader will find out earlier that my father left us when we were little, so I was raised by my mom in a little four-room house. We had no money, and Warren, my uncle, who's driving with me that day, kind of became my, my surrogate dad. Clementine Oh, I rode next to him, paints, brushes, and canvas on my left, my arm draped out the window on the right. It's hot in Louisiana, and morning was the rare time of day when I felt cool air blowing on my face. I breathed it in. Riding beside my uncle, bounding down tar roads from Shreveport to Melrose Plantation, where Clementine lived. Uncle Ward turned down a dusty driveway and stopped in front of a small shotgun house, its white paint chipped and weathered by the relentless southern sun. Clementine was there, sitting on the front porch, just like every screen porch I ever saw, with rips in the old metal screens. Bent over and smiling, she swung the door open, making its rusted hinges squeak. She must have been in her 80s. How y'all doing, she asked, welcoming us. An easel was on the porch and another just inside the front room. Red, green, yellow, and white oil paints were smeared across her worn hands. 
and I could see a painting she was working on, a baptismal procession with black women dressed all in white, strolling from the hilltop church towards the pond below, where a full dunk baptism was taking place. Uncle Warren had told me she was a memory painter, transferring scenes in her mind onto canvas. Seeing me looking, she leaned in and hugged me and led me inside to the other easel with the beginnings of a new painting. This one of the honky-tonk will be for you, Wes, she said. I call it Saturday night. I leaned in and watched her paint, thick brush strokes of bright color. As she worked, she told me life was hard and that people fight and suffer, but they dance too. The painting would remind me of that. You'll have to make up your mind what you're going to do more of, fight or dance. Later, Uncle Warren and I heaved the mattress off the truck and laid it in the place in the back room, taking the old shoddy one away as the evening sky's intense red faded to pink and then into blackness. We headed for home. Clementine waved goodbye from her front porch. She had a better night's sleep in store. When the painting Saturday night was finished, Uncle Warren bought it for me, and it now hangs in my house, a memorial of that day and all the other days I spent with Uncle Warren and Clementine. We often took her paints and brushes, sometimes homemade red beans and rice, with spicy Cajun sausage, small things to make her life easier. Now I know that her ancestors were slaves who'd worked at Melrose, picking cotton from morning until night, and that Clementine herself had once worked in the fields, then as a housemaid and a cook. I'd seen the two-story house with its white column across the street, the brick walk curving under an oak tree draped in Spanish moss. Clementine received no formal education and never had the chance to learn to read or write. But one day in the 1940s, some guests who were artists had left their paints in a drawer. As she cleaned up, rather than throw them away, something drew her to scavenge a discarded cloth window shade from the trash and paint a scene from her memory. That started a habit, a calling, and she created one painting after another, depicting life, often painting of the same theme, picking cotton, weddings, funerals, Saturday night, going to church, until she died at the age of 101. She became one of the most famous of all Southern folk artists and was even invited to the White House. Her work had been displayed at famous galleries such as the Louvre in Paris, the American Folk Art Museum in New York, and the Oprah Winfrey Collection in Chicago. Clementine was treated as other throughout her life, dismissed as poor and inconsequential, depersonalized until her paintings were discovered. But for me, her story is one of light and darkness. In my mind, she's always standing on her porch, painting, following her calling. She taught me there may be pain and violence in life, and that I could go out in the world and help create more hope and healing. And I wanted to close on that, Sergio, because Right now, we are experiencing darkness, and we need light, and we need hope and healing. And I do think that you and what you're doing and all of us can gather together and muster up the energy and the drive and the passion to make sure that we do what's right by these people who are suffering under our care. And we know how to do it. We've already scientifically proven that. But the question is, will we stop long enough to re-gear our care to provide that sort of beautiful medicine and healing for all these people suffering. And so in Clementine's name, I leave you with that story. A beautiful story. And I think it's a perfect place to stop West with a real call for action for our listeners and for ourselves. I want to thank you for shedding light into 
in the life of our patients, but also into our careers. And uh, I really uh, would encourage everybody who's listening to buy this book, read it, and uh, let us know what you think. Wes, uh, thanks for your time. Uh, hope to have you back on the podcast soon and hope to see you in person soon. Me too, Sergio. And thank you so much. And for all your listeners out there, please just let me know, circle back with me. If you do take a look at EDDB, I'd love to get some red ink and calibration from you. So I want to keep getting better at communicating. Appreciate you. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.